0: Hey lab rats! It is I, Igor. Welcome to Crimekeeper. Keeper. It's a beautiful Saturday afternoon. Fighting a migraine, but just ate a full can of northern beans and canned chicken. A little sluggish, but uh, we're gonna see how we get through this together. If your day's going well, we're continuing our locals focus again this week. I realized last episode when I was listening, after it was posted, of course, that I had uh, neglected to record the first three stories that I'm going to go through, so hmm, I don't know how long I have to work here before you people realize that I'm new. I'm also working on the Crime Keeper Facebook page, so hit me on up if you have any ideas about what you'd like to see, or just to say howdy, howdy, howdy. That's from Toy Story. This first event that I'm going to talk about is from a coworker, and she is the aunt of the murder victim here. His name, Larry Dean J.R. Stortz. She did tell me about this and was okay with me using it, obviously, but real odd to have people coming to you and telling you things like that, and it be that close. I titled this, Larry Dean J.R. Stortz Life Ended Due to Jealousy The city is Circleville and I got this initial information from the convicted killer's appeals court documents. His name is Paul Teets and he of course filed for ineffective counsel as they do when they're not happy with their sentence and sometimes I've noticed that it has to do with like a weapons charge being rolled up into their conviction and they're more mad about that than the actual being convicted as a murderer so go figure let's go back to January 10th of 2001 and we are with Jr. and his friends Johnny Forbes and Bobby Bailey They were out with Paul Teets carousing, as the uh, documents say, when they decided at 4 a.m. on the 11th to steal some stereo equipment from a car. When their vehicle comes to a stop, Teets hands Forbes a hat that was also hiding a gun in it. Now, junior didn't see this because he exited the vehicle. Then Teets and Forbes gets out. Teets goes ahead and breaks the car window at the same time that Forbes shoots Jr. in the head four times. His body was found four hours later, and he was quickly tracked down to have been with Teets, so Teets was taken into custody. Teets initially tells police two different stories. First, he said he knew nothing about what was going to happen and only saw the shooting when Forbes shot Jr. Then... He later says that he knew what the attempt was. Jr. liked Forbes' girlfriend. So to me, that's just such an eighth grade thing to take someone's life over. I just can't get over that. He's upset and I guess just decides to end someone's life instead of just saying, hey, stay away or whatever. On January 19th of 2001, Teets was indicted of aggravated murder with a firearm specification and sentenced to life in prison. I guess that was what the appeals had to do with, I'm not going to go on and read it because he's an asshole killer and he deserves to be behind bars. Now Forbes, the person that actually pulled the trigger, a.k.a. Prisoner A416831, according to publicpolicerecord.com, has been in the Southeastern Correctional Institution since 11-9 of 2001. Didn't hear a lot from him. I didn't notice any type of appeals paperwork for him, but I wasn't searching for that. I wanted more information on Jr. and I found it in the form of a website that was put together for a few years called angelfire.com. It's for grieving parents. It's a murder wall, and there was a memorial wall for the murder victims during a certain time frame. I think it was like three or four years, and it has on this Angelfire site Jr. Storch, Jr., Circleville, Ohio. September 9th, 1981 through January 11th of 2001, shot four times, perpetrator was convicted. I let his aunt know about that. She wasn't aware that that had ever been posted. There was any type of wall or page for the memorial, so I'm glad I found that I was able to give that to her. The next event is, was also given to me by a coworker, but they didn't actually know the person which makes it a little more comfortable for me. I know that's weird, but it's nice to have a little separation. I didn't anticipate, like I said, people walking up to me and saying, do this story, don't do that story, I know so-and-so. So this is a little bit more in the realm where I'm comfortable going over it. Lori Pratt overdosed and was left in a field. The city is Cleveland. According to the Post newspapers, there was a man charged in the OD death who got three years. He dumped the victim's body in a field. This is by Allison Wood, November 26, 2016. This ass-lemon's name is Kevin Fisher. He was 35 when he pled guilty of one count of corrupting another with drugs, a second-degree felony, one count of tampering with evidence, third-degree felony, and one count of gross abuse of a corpse, a fifth-degree felony. One count of breaking and entering, fifth degree. A charge of involuntary manslaughter, first degree felony, was dropped. You heard me right. That one was dropped. He had given heroin to Lori, a 49-year-old Creston, Ohio woman, when she OD'd. And Fisher not only did not get her help, but he put her body in an industrial field uh, away from him. But... We'll find out. Not that quickly. Now, Fisher's attorney said he had turned to drugs after a tour in Iraq to deal with his PTSD. Unfortunately, that's the reality. People do turn to drugs. We don't do a good job of assisting people in our, in our country with mental health. Fox 8 News goes on to say that Pratt went missing 10, 25, of 14. Now, Lori had a 17-year-old son that lived with her, and she was on her way to work when she was last seen by her family. Witnesses placed her at a Wadsworth bar with Fisher on 1025. The gross abuse of a corpse and tampering with evidence led the police to her body. They were able to track him down and kind of did the old uh, interrogation game, and he finally took them to where her body was located. The reason it was gross abuse of a corpse is not only did he dump her, but... Charmingly, he decided to use Pratt's ATM card with her dead body in his fucking car. Then he dumps her in a field. Special place in hell for him. The next story I had never heard of, and for being here in Ohio for a majority of my life, I was kind of surprised by that, but maybe you've heard of it. This is Cletus Reese. His kills were requested by a president's wife interesting fact, quote-unquote fact, the city is Danville, Ohio. So during my research, I actually located a book on the killer, the Cletus P. Reese story, Murder Ridge by Jane Call Emler. And I also found other podcast links, but little in the way of newspaper articles and the like. But I did find something initially from OhioExploration.com Paranormal Hauntings of Coshocton County. I always go for those things, so even though this isn't a ghost podcast, if I can find some little story or tidbit, and of course, this is what happened. Now, this reference told me that in Walhonding, that's right, Walhonding is the area referred to as Murder Ridge. Now, it's a stripped ravine that was extensively mined. This ridge was once home to a few families. One was the Reese family, according to local legend. The Reese's only son, Cletus, would kill travelers along Route 26 whose vehicles would break down. He'd then use his tow truck to bring their cars back to his garage where he would kill them. He would then store their bodies in his farmhouse and later eat their remains. (laughs) He would disassemble the victims' cars and sell them for parts. Cletus was supposedly caught once he began selling the whole cars. He admitted to three murders, was sentenced to life at the Lima State Hospital. Now, the documentation shows he never had eaten any of his victims' remains, but his victims are said to haunt the ridge where the remains were discovered in shallow graves. Went on to find out, all that's bullshit. There was no cannibalism. Their cars did not break down. And then he said he'd help them, blah, blah, blah. We're about to find out what he did do, but, you know, I like a good story. Now, I did find from the New York Daily News, which is astonishing to me that I couldn't find it from local sources I had to go and the most information was from New York so good ups on you this information is taken from the following article hulking schizophrenic killer buried bodies at Murder Ridge in Ohio by David J. Krajisek K-R-A-J-I-C-E-K sorry if I massacred it New York Daily News, October 25th, 2014. This actual place, where was referred to as Murder Ridge, is a sloping farmland 15 miles west of Coshocton, and it's 200 acres where Cletus P. Reese lived, who was reported to have Herculean strength, known for carrying a good-sized hog in each arm. Now that sounds to me like something they'd say in the 50s. Despite this, he didn't have a lot of friends. Shocking, I know. So he made up imaginary ones and was said to have spoken to them loudly. 1951, his older sisters had him committed to the state mental hospital and he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Four months later, he was released to his sister Ethel's care on the condition that he would be reassessed by the doctors every six months for at least the next several years. When this would happen, she would advise the doctors that he was getting better, And they eventually, within a short time, actually, released Cletus to her care with no further follow-up required. Do you see some foreshadowing there? Big blinker lights. 1954. Reese decides he needs a new car. No money be damned. So on June 12th of 54, he arranges to have a dealer bring a brand new Hudson, which I guess is like a real nice vehicle, to his farm so he can test drive it. Clyde Patton was 28, and he gladly said that he would bring the vehicle out because he had four kids and a wife to support. But when Reese returned, he was alone. This worried his sister Ethel, so she actually called the cops when old brubby Cletus could not relay where Clyde had gone. We got some good names. Cletus, Clyde, Ethel. Nice. The next day, while searching the land, the police and investigators came upon a lump thus discovering the body of 58-year-old Lester Melick, Who the fuck is he? I don't know. Let's look and see. That rhymed. Who had not been seen since a previous Thanksgiving, when he was out drinking with old CPR. That's right, Cletus P. Reese. Lester's skull had been caved in with a club. When questioned, Crazy Cletus says, This has been going on for a long time. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Then the bodies of Clyde Patton, the car dealership dude, and 39-year-old Paul Tish were found. Tish had been in the mental hospital with old uh, CPR, but he had not had not been seen since she escaped December 8th of 52. All of the people that they found, Lester, Clyde, and Paul, they all died of crushing blows to the head. So this is when the uh, president's wife comes into play. Old uh, Cletus states that he had been directed to murder by Bess Truman. Yep, Harry Truman's wife. So that's a good ploy. Do you think it worked? It did not. Prosecutors sent Reese to the asylum for the criminally insane in Lima for a 30-day evaluation. Um, he never got out. He died there of a heart attack 11 years later at age 48, May 15, 1966 again unfortunately mental health is not understood and in this case I don't want to blame the sister she didn't do the murders but she was trying to help him move on and instead inadvertently helped him move on to complete murder now the next one is an event that happened in Mansfield Ohio now I have a uh, family member that when she heard that I was doing local murders, said, you got to check into Mansfield. There's some crazy ass things that happened there. That place is wild. And I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. And don't hear anything about it recently that I could think of. Looked into it. Man, I could do like a whole other episode or two just on Mansfield weird murders, which may happen in the future. We'll see. This one is from the Forensic Files Now, which love Forensic Files. The original... And Forensic Files too. This is called Foundation of Lies. And like I said, the city is Mansfield. So this is pretty recent. This is from 1989. So there's Dr. John Boyle. He's 46. He has a wife, Noreen, who's 44. And they live with their two kids. Collier, 11. And Elizabeth, 3. He was a successful medical doctor. That happened to uh, have a girlfriend on the side. And a history of having a lot of them. Due to this, Noreen got tired and finally filed for a divorce. Dr. Aspoil said, hey, you know, let's work this out. I'm going to get a house in Erie, Pennsylvania, because, you know, everybody knows that will fix things. Unfortunately, Noreen wasn't able to see this happen. December 31st, 1989, Jack struck Noreen and suffocated her to death after an argument at the residence in Mansfield. He wanted to be with his side piece, Sherry Campbell, and live in said new home in Erie with her and the kids. Now, Collier had even witnessed Sherry and Dr. M. boiled like embroiled, boils in there, in an affair and kissed. So he relayed this to his mom. Uh, Why was daddy kissing that lady, whatever. And it went from there. He kills his wife And destroys his family. The next few days, he decided he was going to commute between Mansfield and Erie. And he was telling everyone he was getting the new house ready. So what Doob was really doing was renting a jackhammer to make a hole in the basement floor, placing the mother of his children's body inside of it. Then he paints the floor, put carpets over it, and goes about his business. He went on to show how bold he was by taking the broken concrete pieces, dumping them on a business associate's land, who also happened to be the uncle of his lady friend, who was 26, and preggers with his baby. Keeps getting better, huh? Well, Collier wasn't having any of it. He told the police about the kiss between Daddy B and Sherry. He also mentioned to them the noise he heard the night his parents argued on New Year's Eve, his dad's trips back and forth to Erie, how his father mentioned how sore he was when he got back from the house in Erie. Even the three-year-old reportedly told investigators she saw daddy hitting mommy, which, oh my God, breaks my heart, and it's just, ugh. Was the girlfriend involved, though, is my question. Well, the real estate agent said that she, Sherry, the side piece, signed her name as N. Sherry Boyle to try and impersonate the wife in court. She's in court, and Sherry pleads the fifth dimension, which is a good group. Evidence, you may ask? There was the receipt for the jackhammer rental and the pieces of concrete found that matched his basement. Dr. Dick's response? He said he used the jackhammer to break up ice outside. I know how to do the tootsie roll, but uh, I'm uh, doing the eye roll right now with this lie. Even better? Him being held on $5 million bail and him being his own attorney, which we all know what they say about a man that has himself or his own counsel or whatever the saying is. And he testified for nine hours on his behalf. Do you think it worked? We'll see. Now, poor Collier testified and he was like um, 11 at that point or a few years older and he let them know that him and his sister were afraid of their dad's temper dr jackass boyle gets sentenced to 20 years for murder and an additional 18 months for abuse of a corpse so this is all wrapped up right i wish 1994 rolls around and uh dr boyle decides to collude with his brother and not only start bad-mouthing his dead wife he's but said that the body found on the Erie property wasn't her Just another body. Just happens to be another body. Apparently, Nancy's eye color was wrong on the autopsy report, along with his brother claiming she called him after her official disappearance. So this Charles C.J. ass boyle, his brother, starts saying some wild shit. Charles is saying that Noreen's adoption of Elizabeth from Taiwan was illegitimate and alleged the adoption was the first operation test of a baby-selling organization, for which Noreen Boyle became an agent, and that she, and an associate, had nabbed several hundred thousand dollars in clear profits from this illegal enterprise. What's more, Noreen was also an international gold jewelry smuggler, according to Charles. And then she'd planned to burn down the house in Erie out of jealousy, as she was the one that had multiple affairs, and which included a contractor and a uh, local police officer. All Charles claimed. He also sujected, suggested that Noreen staged her own death and then disappeared of her own volition. Really busy for uh, wanting to disappear, huh? Lots going on. Because of all this ridiculousness, poor Noreen's body was exhumed to confirm her identity, which probably was ultimately the best, but how how heart-wrenching for the family. Jeez. Now, Dr. Boyle, on the testicles, has changed his story, as they often try to do and try to convince people of self-defense. He now says Noreen came at him with a knife. He pushed her. Then he blacks out. And when I woke up, she was just dead. Idiot. Let's get to what we care about now, the kids. Elizabeth was adopted by the family of a local high school principal. And there was a documentary made about this, A Murder in Mansfield. The filmmaker states that Collier had a lot of rejection from both sides of his family. And this is from Barbara Koppel. His father's family probably felt that he betrayed them by testifying. And they didn't want to adopt him or have him live with them. And the mother's family probably had some trouble embracing a murderer's son. In a sense, a further rejection. A local couple named Susan and George Ziegler eventually adopted Collier. And he credits them with helping him recover from the traumatic events of his childhood. Today, Collier goes by Collier Landry and works as a cinematographer out of L.A. As of 2016, Collier was seeking to reconnect with his sister Elizabeth, whom he lost track of after the trial. It was he that conceived of the idea for a murder in Mansfield, which was produced by Cabin Creek Films. It shows Collier's homecoming to Mansfield and his reunion with his mother's best friend, as well as a lead detective, Dave Messmore, who also appeared in the Forensic Files episode. So check that one out. I I need to as well. Messmore and his wife actually wanted to adopt Collier, but legal problems prevented it. So as much as you can have closure and a positive outcome, it looks like Collier has gotten his, and hopefully Elizabeth has as well. So you know what time it is. It is dad joke time. Time we love to hate. Did you guys hear about the big booty killer who bought way too many drinks at the bar for her victim? She had the drunk in the trunk. And where do killers get their equipment these days? On Amazon Crime. So two quick and painful ones, but those are now out of the way. So we'll go on to our next story event, Kimberly Paradiso. I titled this, In a Bad Place in Life Trying to Move Forward. And this, the city of this happening is Dayton. Found a couple sources. The first one was Dayton Daily News, and this talks about Gary R. Rednauer, 51, guilty of the murder and felonious assault of Kimberly Paradiso, 47. Now, this uh, dickhole was already, had already been imprisoned for killing one woman in 1992 for second-degree murder and two counts of evidence tampering. He'd already served time for this, got out, and what was he up to again? A bunch of bullshit. Rednower also said he had sex with Paradiso, though she didn't want to. So you just can't say he raped her? Yeah, charming man. Rednower, who has three brothers and one sister in Ohio prisons, what a claim to fame. One brother and his sister killed a man from Tip City. Nothing like projects when you have a family, huh? This, again, I mentioned about my previous reference from a legal document, the appeals document. This is from legal.com. And it is taken from the Appellate Court of Appeals, 2nd District, Montgomery County. The only thing I took from here are the facts of the murder. So they're not disputing the facts of the murder. I don't know if he was saying, I got ineffective counsel or so I had a gun and used it, but I shouldn't go to prison for that. Some shit. Again, murder is a murderer. I looked at this for the facts. Sunday, March 14th, 2010. Several children found a body lying on the ground in the backyard of a deserted house located at 56 Warder Avenue in Dayton. The children alerted a neighbor, who then called the police. When they arrived, they found a woman, later identified as Kimberly Paradiso, dressed in a t-shirt and jeans. Her clothing was damp, not dressed for the weather. So it must have been rather cold that March, as it can be in Ohio. Um, anytime. Her shirt was pulled up, slightly disheveled, Her pants button was undone, the zipper slightly unzipped. She had facial injuries and some discoloration on the neck area and was obviously deceased. Her right shoe and shoelace also looked if they had been burned. At the time of her death, Paradiso was homeless and had been staying at the YWCA Batter Women's Shelter in downtown Dayton. Paradiso's roommate, Kimberly Jones, last saw her on Friday morning, the 12th, at around 10 a.m., According to Jones, Paradiso had alcohol abuse problems with which she had been struggling. Paradiso had also told Jones she was hanging around with a male friend. Jones told Paradiso that she was concerned and that Paradiso should not be meeting her friend in an abandoned houses and drinking. Jones additionally told Paradiso that if the friend were buying liquor for her, he would have sexual expectations, so she told her friend not to go. Now, the YMCA has a curfew of 10.30 p.m., and according to this, if a resident has three infractions, she's asked to leave the shelter. Paradiso had always shown up on time before curfew, and this time didn't come back Friday or Saturday night. So her friend Jones told the staff, look, I think something's going on. This is what she's told me, and I'm worried. Paradiso was also supposed to pick up clothes from her daughter, Timberly on Friday the 12th, but never showed up. Timberly was trying to help Paradiso find an apartment and cut ties with an abus- abusive boyfriend, Raymond Robinson, who had been in jail since February 16th of 2010 on charges related to an incident involving Paradiso. Once again, mother, you know, working with family, working within herself to try to move forward and something happens. The police didn't know Paradiso's identity until Sunday the 16th when Jones contacted them after hearing about the incident on the news. Police spoke with Jones. Detectives went back to the 56 Water Avenue to try and locate witnesses. They encountered several people in the alley who gave them the name of Artis Allen, who lived on Neal Avenue, and Gary Redenauer, who had been rehabbing a house on Neal Avenue. Neal Avenue is located close to where the body was found. Detectives were initially not able to speak with Allen, but were able to find a photograph of Redenauer and prepare a photo spread. On the 17th of March, Paradiso's autopsy was conducted, and they had three police officers present. The coroner verbalized his findings as he conducted the autopsy. These findings included blunt force trauma with extensive swelling on the left side of the orbit next to the eye, abrasions to the lips... Consistent with being struck by hand or fist. The facial injuries had been inflicted when Pyridisa was still alive. She had also sustained extensive bruising on the side of the muscle attached to the skin, which caused, was caused by blunt force trauma of significant force. Oh, God, I just hate this. Because her shirt was pulled up and her left nipple was bruised, they examined for possible rape and swabbed for DNA. In addition to the other injuries, she also had bruising on her neck and a crush injury to the back of her esophagus, which was consistent with strangulation. The coroner was of the opinion that the cause of death was strangulation with blunt force head injuries. However, the death certificate that was issued on the 17th indicated that the immediate cause of death was pending. The coroner's office does that frequently, apparently, when it is waiting on additional information like toxicology reports. Poor Paradiso also had abrasions over both her shoulder blades, which were consistent, it said, with her having been drugged or moved on the back after her death. The toxicology did eventually indicate that she had a blood alcohol level of 0.262 grams per cent, significantly elevated. However, the levels of drugs was not high enough to have caused an overdose. The coroner also noted that the findings regarding rigor mortis were consistent with her having died in the early morning hours of the 13th or possibly late in the night of the 12th. When the police showed artist Allen the photo spread, Allen was able to identify Rednauer, who he said he noticed in the neighborhood about a month before the murder. On Friday, March 12th, Saturday the thirteenth, Alan had seen Paradiso and Rednauer together at about ten forty five AM at the Food Time Market, which was about a block from Neal Avenue. Rednauer had asked Alan for some change, and also Alan saw the couple again around four thirty, coming out of a UDF, United Dairy Farmers store with beer. After all that, I need to have a cleansing visual image. So I looked up a picture of a little tiny baby monkey on all fours, so cute, could fit in the palm of your hand. And also, when I pulled that up, a picture of a baby dressed in like a monkey costume for Halloween, holding a little tiny fake banana. It always helps. Cleansing images. The last one that we'll go over is a local one here in Westerville. And this was just, they just arrested her husband. And this is Emily Noble. Missing Westerville woman betrayed by her new husband, Moore and Noble, married in 2018. He reported her missing a year ago last May after he claimed that they had celebrated her 52nd birthday together. According to the family, he told police the couple returned home, went to sleep, and that she just went missing the next morning. But, as often happens, her keys and wallet were still in the home. He said maybe she went off with the Amish people. Maybe she was kidnapped. This is what neighbor Sue Kelly told WSYX after the husband's arrest. He kept throwing, throwing out all these crazy scenarios. Noble's family claimed more refused to participate in each event and also stopped cooperating with police. When I looked on her Facebook page, it's a Remembering Emily Noble memorial Not only are there personal stories from her friends who knew her and pictures they posted, it has links to various media coverings. So that would be a good place if you've not heard of it or want to get caught up. You can go and look and also get a sense of who she was. And I always like that. Murdering Moore, her husband, is said to have pleaded to be on a podcast to bring awareness to her disappearance. And I believe it was The Vanished that he was on. Then he made creepy comments that brought attention to him the unwanted kind. He made statements about, I believe when he was asked what he thought of her when he first saw her, he said she had nice arms and legs, something just odd. And the podcasters were like, "Mm, this doesn't feel right. So they reported it. Matthew Moore staged his wife's body to appear that she hanged herself in the wooded area near her home which I hate so much for so many different reasons, but I just don't get... I mean, I'm glad that killers are stupid for the most part because you don't think that the, the rope's going to do different damage than something when you're um, strangling her. Whatever. Uh, like I said, I'm glad they're stupid. Well, lab rats, that's all that I have for today, and I hope that you enjoy the rest of your weekend. We do have some exciting things planned. Don't know if Queen V is going to share or not. We're ironing some things out for possible outings that will have the opportunity to meet you. Maybe moving into the YouTube, Facebook Live, TikTok realms. We're just talking about a lot of exciting things. And you know what happens. Queen V is called me back to the lab with the promise of salty fish head goodness. Remember, Everyone must find their truth, and mine is Abby Normal. If you enjoy the experience and experiments of Murder Lab, go to Facebook, Instagram, and murderlabmedia.com for updates. Share with your friends, those you created in a lab or not. As long as they can subscribe and listen, we'll take it. Murder Lab is available on Google Play and iTunes. The RSS feed is on murderlabmedia.com for you to plug into your podcast app. We can always use more lab rats. picture of a baby dressed in like a monkey costume for Halloween holding a little tiny fake banana